As you may have anticipated from what we have been confessing thus far, uh, today our sermon text will be Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety. Genesis 3, this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way 
to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word again this morning, we see a difficult thing. We see the single act through which all sin and sorrow and death and suffering have come into the world. It is a a sad and a difficult thing. But I pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate the truths taught in this text to us. And most of all, through it, we would see the hope that was promised even then through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. One of the greatest and most perplexing questions that Christians or really anyone for that matter face is the problem of evil. Why is there evil and suffering in the world, specifically as it pertains to God? If God is good and righteous and holy and all-powerful and all-knowing, how and why does he permit evil? How and why do bad things happen? Why is there violence? Why is there disease? Why is there suffering and death? Well, if you've been with us these last few weeks, you've probably felt some of that dissonance as we've looked at Genesis 1 and 2. We saw back in chapter 1, the week of creation, and how God created all things from nothing in the span of six days, and very good. And last week, we saw a recapitulation, a retelling of the sixth day of creation zoomed in, focused on the creation of man and God's special relationship, his covenantal relationship with man. We have seen that when God created, he declared all things good. We see a state of paradise. We see man created and placed in this garden where all of his needs were met. There was food, there was water, even luxuries like gold and precious stones. And all of this created with a good purpose, and man was placed there to work, to take dominion, and the fruit of the work of his hands would be productive. It too would be good. Then we saw the creation of woman as a, a companion for man, of one in the same flesh, and together, man and woman living in this harmonious and unashamed life together. In our text last week, we saw that God entered into a covenant of life with man upon the condition of perfect obedience, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if man fulfilled these terms, man would have eternal life and blessedness. He was under a probation. He was under a time of testing that if he kept God's command, he would pass into eternal life, no longer able to sin no longer able to die. Not only did man have all the goods and blessings that God created for him in this natural state, he was given an opportunity for even more. Now we hear of this world of paradise, this state of such goodness and blessing, and in many ways it sounds very strange and foreign to us. How did we get from the world of Genesis 1 and 2 that was so good 
and so overflowing with blessings to this world, the world in which we live, the one that is so often filled with pain, with sorrow, with suffering and death. And what does this teach us about where we are now? We will answer the que- we will answer that question this morning in three points. First, confusion. We see an intruder, an invader into this good world, this good garden who tries to subvert what God has made and what God has said. We see this in verses 1 through 5. Second, we will see corruption. In verses 6 through 13 of Genesis 3, the intruder succeeds at his task, causing Adam and Eve to fall into sin. And then third and finally, we look at consequences. This is seen in verse 14 through verse 24, the end of the chapter. Because of the fall and sin, because of what Adam and Eve did, and what happened to all of us in it, we see the world we are in now. And we must ask, is there any hope to be found? So again, those are our three points this morning. We have confusion, corruption, and consequences. So first we see confusion in verses 1 through 5. As you may recall from last week, God created Adam, entered into a covenant with him, and then subsequently created woman from out of Adam using one of his ribs. Now, as it was Adam alone and not Eve who was present at the giving of the covenant, Adam stood in the place of all humanity as the covenant head. He was responsible for the carrying out of the covenant terms. He was responsible for Eve and all who would come after him and their obedience to the covenant terms. The terms are given to him, and he is responsible for them. And this would include communicating those covenant terms to Eve, who was not there, and ensuring that she was acting consistently with the covenant that God had made with him. But in verse 1 of chapter 3, we get another voice, another influence, another player on the scene, the serpent. Now, the first thing we learn about the serpent is that he was more cunning than any beast of the field. And this word for cunning in the Hebrew, it can be translated in various ways. Some are actually positive, but many are negative. So John Calvin, he uses the word subtle to describe the serpent, or others use shrewd or clever. Now what is clear is that something here is ascribed to the serpent that is not true of the other creatures. The serpent has personality. The serpent has speech. Where does it come from and what accounts for this? Well, this serpent is being used, being influenced and worked through by Satan himself. In the time from God's creation to Genesis 3, Satan and many angels with him had rebelled against God and they had fallen, such that there was evil in the cosmos, in the spiritual realm. But Satan is not content with having corrupted the spiritual realm, and he manifests himself in creation to corrupt what God has made there. As I introduced earlier, this concept of the problem of evil, a question that rises is, why? Why was Satan permitted to enter and corrupt creation? Now, this is in many ways a mystery to us. We do hold, as articles of faith, several truths that should inform what we think of this. First, 
God is good. He is all good. He is not and cannot be the author of sin. However, God did create his creatures, both men and angels, rational, with reason, and they were left to the freedom of their own will such that they could keep God's will perfectly if they chose to do so, but they were also able to fall and sin. Satan and those angels that fell with him had so exercised their wills to rebel against God and introduce evil and chaos to the created order. But now comes the confrontation with sin and rebellion on the earth. Satan in this serpent form finds in Eve a potential weakness he can exploit. He comes to her and speaks to her and asks her a question. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now the answer to this question is no. God did give them every tree of the garden that was good for food. And they were permitted to eat of any of them with one exception. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So why does Satan ask this question? He asks this question to misdirect, to confuse to call into question the goodness of what God has commanded. Now the woman attempts to provide a correct answer. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So far, so good. That is true. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it. So still true. Nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now hold on just a second. When God gave the command to Adam in chapter 2, the command was against eating. There has been added, it seems, to this command, not to touch. Now commentators divide on what is going on in this edition of this provision concerning touching the tree. Some say that it is out of care and piety that Eve adds that it should not be touched, that she's just being extra careful. She doesn't even want to go near that tree because of what could happen. But others say that this additional command is itself a corruption of the command because Eve is putting words in God's mouth and accusing him of being more severe than he has been. Or perhaps it is even possible that Adam, having been responsible for the covenant, relayed it and taught it to Eve in a more severe form. We do not know for certain, but however it occurred, Something between chapter 2 and chapter 3 has changed in how Eve understands the covenants. But the point in the serpent's line of questioning is to sow a seed of doubt in Eve's mind as to God's goodness. Up to now, Eve has likely not questioned. She never asked, why would God keep us away from this one particular tree? But the devil is crafty. In verses 4 and 5, he makes the explicit appeal. He tells the lie, you will not surely die. So he has accused God of falsehood, of lying concerning the covenant. Instead, the devil accuses God of withholding something good from Adam and Eve. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not only does the serpent wish to call into question God's truth and God's goodness, but he also seeks to sow in the heart of Eve 
jealousy towards God. This is a jealousy that we are all inclined towards. We question God's word. We question God's works and ways and think that we know better. Well, if I was in charge of the world, if I was in charge of the universe, I would do things differently and it would be better. But this is blasphemous arrogance. God is creator. We are creature. God is good. We are not. God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and we are severely limited. But rather than subjection to God, we are prone to subversion, to trying to overthrow what God has said and God has made and what God requires. So the serpent has called into question what God has told Adam concerning what is right. The serpent says that eating of the tree will bestow knowledge of good and evil. Now Adam and Eve already know sufficiently what is good and evil, what they need for everlasting life and blessedness with God. They have a good creation. They're given the law of nature and the law of covenant, which are to be the rule for their lives. And that's enough. That's what they need to know. But the devil is inciting them to speculate beyond what God has revealed to them, which again amounts to a subversion of God's authority. Really, all sin comes back to this first sin. Anytime we sin, anytime anyone sins, it's a rejection of God's authority. It is to ask the question the serpent asked, did God really say? And decide that either God has not said or that God was wrong when he said. And the end of this line of questioning is the same. It is sin and it is death. And so Satan has set his trap. He has sowed doubt and confusion in the heart of the woman that will come to its full fruition. And we will see this in our second point. After confusion, we see corruption in verses 6 through 13. In verse 6, the questioning of God's truth and God's goodness bears fruit. Believing the lie that she has been told, seeing that the tree looks good, looking like something that should be eaten, the woman takes and eats. But here we are also introduced to Adam's great failure. See, this was not merely a sinful act on the part of Eve. The end of verse 6 tells us that she also gave to her husband with her. So was Adam off somewhere? Was he gone while this temptation of Eve was going on? No. We learn here that Adam was right there. You very well may have heard this whole sales pitch from the serpent. Now what should Adam have done? Well, he certainly should not have let the serpent deceive his wife. He should have cast the serpent out, even killed the serpent. But as so many men, Adam was prone to being passive. He saw disorder and chaos in the garden, chaos and disorder in his household, and he just sat back and watched it unfold. And by the time that he gets involved... He immediately caves. He immediately capitulates. He, too, takes and eats. And so corruption comes to its fullness when not only Eve, but Adam, too, takes and eats of the forbidden tree. 
But in verse 7, what was previously absent, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, that is shame, suddenly appears. Adam and Eve realize that they are naked. They realize their sin has introduced to them a need to be hidden, a need to be unknown, an inability to stand in the innocence in which they once had. And so they attempt, as best they can, to cover themselves inadequately. They use fig leaves. Because really, though they think they are covering themselves, nothing has been hidden. In verse 8, they hear God in the garden. They know now that they are guilty before him, and so in their shame, they hide. See, we can often think that when we sin, that our sins are secret. They're known to us and no one else, and they can be hidden from the rest of the world. And maybe we even start to convince ourselves that our sins are hidden from God. But there is no hiding. God knows everything that we have ever done, everything that we ever will do. No sin, great or small, no sin of even thoughts or of word or of deed is hidden from him. God knew exactly where Adam and Eve were, and he knew exactly what they had done. But he wanted to hear it from them. He calls out, where are you? Adam replies, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So whereas before there was this innocence, there was nakedness without shame, Everything has been overthrown. Adam now has this awareness and he has this shame. But God already knows. And he puts them to the question, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And rather than accept his responsibility as the one with whom God made the covenant and who was ultimately responsible for its fulfillment, Adam blame shifts. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Yeah, I did it, but it's really her fault. But Adam was there the whole time. He knew the serpent was talking to Eve. He knew something was amiss, something was going on that he needed to intervene in. He should have rebuked the serpent. He should have driven it out, but he did not. He was passive. He was a coward. And he, too, ate. And rather than take responsibility for his role in this, Adam now makes the woman who, just a chapter earlier, had been this great gift and blessing he had received from God, a scapegoat. She's not my companion. She's not my helper. She's my problem. She's my burden. Disharmony and disorder has been introduced to the marriage relationship. Now next, God interrogates the woman, and she confesses that the serpent deceived her, and she ate. A more honest assessment, and yet still one that is far too little, too late. There is no going back to the way things were before. And this brings us to our final point. This corruption produces what we will talk about now in our third and final point in verses 14 through 24, which is the consequences. So after this short interrogation, this short trial, God hands down his verdict starting in verse 14. To the serpent, 
a curse to crawl on his belly on the ground all the days of his life. You see snakes, you notice that they do not have legs. This is their station, this is their situation resulting from this fall. We also see a general repulsiveness and disgustingness of snakes. For most people, they see snakes and don't like them. They're ugly, they're often even dangerous if they're like the rattlesnakes or other venomous snakes. Snakes serve as a natural reminder of the corruption of the fall. But this is not merely a natural cursing of natural snakes. In verse 15, the second part of the cursing of the serpent, we see vital spiritual truth. What was promised to Adam if he had not broken the covenant that God made with him? Genesis 2.17 told us, or if he did break the covenant, what was promised? In Genesis 2.17, it says, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now note that Adam has eaten of the tree, and yet, physically speaking, he has not died. Why not? Well, God already, from the moment of the fall, is showing his grace to Adam and Eve. And we see further revelation of this grace in Genesis 3.15. This is a verse often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, which means first gospel. Because in it, we have the first clear biblical revelation of the salvation that is to come in Christ. Where this covenant with Adam, a covenant of works or covenant of life, has been broken Immediately we pivot to a new and different covenant, a covenant of grace. The text says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now here there is a division of humanity, of civilization, and of cultures along two lines. There's the line of the serpent, the line of Satan, and those that belong to him. The line of those who belong to the age of this world and are on the way to eternal destruction. But then there is the line that comes from the woman. The line from which will come the children of God. Those who are destined for salvation. The church father Augustine refers to these as two cities. The city of man, which is passing away, and the city of God, those who are on their way to glory. But these two lines, these two cities, they will be characterized by conflict. We see this in the remainder of the verse. He, the seed of the woman, will bruise your, the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there is one coming from this line of the woman who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent, will deal a fatal blow to Satan and his works. I think you can see where this is going. In fact, if you're looking at the New King James Version, which capitalizes all words that are referring to God, you'll notice the second instance of seed in verse 15 is capitalized there. They're giving away the ending. But the path to this ending will not be without resistance. The serpent's line and the woman's line will be in constant struggle. The serpent will strike the heel of the woman's offspring. There will be conflict and tribulation and suffering in this life for those who belong to the city of God. But ultimately, redemption will come 
in Jesus Christ, who was the seed of a woman, born of a virgin, thus born without the guilt and corruption of Adam's sin. And Christ himself will be struck by the serpent. He will undergo all the temptations and sorrows and weaknesses of this human life, and yet will do so without sin. And as the second Adam, he will prevail where the first Adam failed, even if through suffering and death. Romans 5, 18 and 19, we looked at a little earlier, but it makes this connection clear. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. When the covenant of works was broken, the covenant of grace began. It was made. Where sin entered, hope of deliverance also came. But there's a long, hard road ahead. Life in this world after the fall is full of difficulty and of sorrow for God's people. In fact, we see this in the verses that follow. We see a series of curses on people and on the earth. To the woman, we see the pain of childbearing compounded. We see a change in the marriage and family relationship in verse 16. Now, verse 16 is the source of some controversy, some translations Render it that women's desire will be contrary to her husband. But most say your desire will be for your husband. I think the latter, for your husband, better suits the text. Now this is not to say that conflict and contrary desires are not present in marriages, but that's not what the text here is doing. We've already seen the disunion, the disharmony introduced to marriage. But instead... What is happening is the nature and priority of marriage and the husband's role as head of the household is established and confirmed even in the fallen world. We see here that the order of marriage and family will continue. But in that will be pain and difficulty. Childbearing will be painful. In fact, it will often be deadly, while in many ways, We see this mitigated in our day. For most of human history, childbearing was one of the leading causes of death. But next, after the curses to the woman, come curses to the man. The man will labor and toil, but his labor and toil will be cursed. It will not be in the paradise of the garden. Instead, he will work the ground, he'll till the soil, and it will not freely give. The ground will produce weeds. It may not produce enough sometimes, and there will be famine. It will take backbreaking labor to get it to produce it all. And then at the end of all that labor, man returns to the dust from which he came. Physical death will now occur where it has not. But as if the announcement of coming death was not devastating enough, it is illustrated for them in verse 21. After Adam gives Eve her name in verse 20 as the mother of all living, we next see that God makes for Adam and Eve garments of animal skins. This is the first recorded instance of something dying in the Bible. 
These animals are killed so that man and woman can be covered. Adam and Eve had to watch one of the good creatures that God had made suffer, bleed, and die to cover their shame and nakedness. Now this itself is a foreshadowing of sacrifices that will be made for sin, which are themselves types and shadows of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. For sin, death must result. It is either the death of the sinner or the death of another in his place. We also see after this that Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. They cannot live there any longer. They cannot eat of the tree of life because the curse of death has come upon them. And so they are driven away. The garden, the, the garden is guarded by a fiery cherubim so that Adam and Eve may never enter again. And so it is here we have the answer to the question I posed at the beginning. Why is there evil, pain, and suffering, and death? How did we get from such a good world to the one we have now full of pain and sorrow and sin? Well, the fault lies not with God. It lies with us. Now, we might object, I wasn't there. I wouldn't have eaten of the tree. You would have. I would have. None of us would have stood the test. Every, la- every day, every last one of us faces the question of the serpent. Did God really say? And we either answer in the negative, saying, no, God has not said. Or we answer, yeah, but, and then make our excuses for why. What makes us think we would have prevailed against Adam and Eve's testing? And because Adam was the one with whom the covenant was made with all humanity, his sin is not only for him, but for the whole human race. This we refer to as original sin. All of us are now conceived and born in sin, unable to not sin, and we all add to Adam's original sin and the guilt of it our own actual sins, our own transgressions against God. And for these, all of us face physical and spiritual death. At this fall, we see the corruption of sin and death enter into creation. But we also see the way of escape. Not an escape that is based on anything we can do. Because once we are fallen, we can do nothing to stop sinning or to make atonement for our sins committed or to stop death. We can do nothing to fix this world, to restore it to its unfallen paradise state. No, the way of escape is not through us. Instead, it is in this seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. The perfect God-man has come and offered himself in our place to make atonement for our sins. Even at the fall, even in mankind's darkest hour, Even when sin was its most crushing and burdensome, the grace of the gospel was held out. And so it is held out now for all who would believe. Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He fulfilled the law perfectly that Adam broke and that we all have broken. He suffered and died, though himself innocent, to pay the penalty for our sins. And he was raised from the dead to conquer death and to show that it no longer had power over his people. The way of escape from sin and death 
is through Christ and Christ alone. To those who will receive him, to those who would believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He restores what was lost in Adam. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship, relationship with God. And so if you have not yet repented and believed in Christ, that offer is held out to you once again today. But if you are in Christ today, remember your hope. That even as sin and death and decay rule in this age, Christ has made a way. That what was lost that fateful day in the garden will be returned. That we will once again see God and be where He is if we belong to Him. And this gives us great confidence in this life. And so may we all war against sin in the flesh and the devil who whispers in our ears, did God really say? May we long for the restoration of this creation. And may we proclaim this gospel in a lost and dying world so that they too may share in it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word even as it tells us many harsh realities about the fall and sin and the guilt which we all bear. For it also shows us our need for a Savior and points us to the Savior who has come in our stead, Jesus Christ the righteous. I pray that all here gathered today would believe this gospel, would trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And I pray that we would all in gratitude and thankfulness for this great salvation, proclaim him to a lost and dying world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.